Welcome back to the Go in the Match podcast. Today I'm joined by The Guardian's Daniel Harris. Daniel is a football writer for The Guardian and a match-going Man United fan and has written two books on following United through the years. Daniel, thanks for giving me time today, mate, and thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Okay, so uh, I want you to take us back to your childhood and following United. Where were you born and how did your love for Man United begin? So I was born in London, but um, my dad is from Cheatham Hill in Manchester. And uh, his dad has a season ticket at Old Trafford in the 40s and 50s. So he passed it on to my dad and uh, my dad passed it on to me. Um, and yeah, I mean, how thing, how it's nothing really special how these things usually work. And um, I was, I guess, obsessed with, with all sport, but football in particular, for as long as I can remember. I was born in 1979 and um, there are pictures of me in a red and white baby grow watching United or not watching United lose the cup final to Arsenal. And um, I can remember, I think the, fir- the first games I can remember watching and happening are in 1983 when I was four. So, yeah, it's been there. It's always been there. And I guess it will always be there. Yeah. So, I mean, every episode I've done, I've kind of touched on, you know, when you go to your first match and walking up the stairs and you see in the pitch, obviously, if you're travelling from London like yourself, going to Old Trafford, that must have been, you know, obviously, you know, you're going to be going to the matches. You must have been like that excited as a kid going but was there, was there any sort of players that you were like particularly interested in, you know, getting off your seat and watching that one player or those two players? Well, watching United in the eighties, it was it was all about Brian Robson. Um, my my parents still take the piss out of me that when I was a kid, um, I used to complain that they called me Daniel and why didn't they call me Brian with a Y? Um, and um, yeah, the, I mean the eighties for United was. I mean there were some other great players like Norman Whiteside was a great player and a hero, Mark Hughes, um, Paul McGrath, but it was it was all about Brian Robson. And I remember there was one day, and it's the only time I've ever cried when United lost the game. United played West Ham, and um, Robson scored, and United went 1-0 up. Then Robson equalised. Then, then and United won. I should probably give a bit of a scene, actually. United haven't won the league since uh, 1968, and uh, they won the first 10 games of the season. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone's done that since. And... Um, that, it, I went to my first game. It was it was one of those ten, and um, then we, you know, I played West Ham. And I don't even remember the day. It was the first of February, and um, United go one nil up uh, with a goal from Robson, and then West Ham equalised. Robson goes off with a dislocated shoulder. United lose. Basically, the league's gone, and Liverpool end up winning the double. And that afternoon is basically yeah, it's a decade in an afternoon now. Yeah. And um, so yeah, it was. I mean, it was all about Brian Robson. And I think that people today, when they talk about the great midfielders. <clears throat> A lot of people have forgotten how good Brian Robson was. Um, Paul Gascoigne always used to refer to him as the greatest player in the world. And um, I remember, I remember, um, yeah, I think it was 19, maybe 87, there was a match to mark the centenary of the FA. Maybe it was a little bit later. And um, it was, it was an, uh, an England team against the rest of the world. And Maradona was there. And uh, Brian Robson absolutely dominated that game. I think the, I think, uh, the Football League won 3-0, I think. Yeah. I think Robson scored and Whiteside scored. It was basically United 3, the rest of the world nil. That was, that was how we looked at it in those days, uh, any point in the storm, basically. But it was all about Brian Robson. Brian Robson had incredible technical ability, incredible drive. He scored goals. He had, I mean, the most obvious comparison is, is Roy Keane because they both played for United, but they were that same kind of player. It doesn't exist so much anymore. And I guess of those, guys, of those two, I would say that I'm a bit young to really evaluate Brian Robson in the way that I can evaluate Keane because his, like, I mean, his, like, he was, he'd signed for United, we signed for United when I was two. And so, and so even when I was old enough to like football and go to the game and watch, watch the game, 
I was a bit young to appreciate football in a particularly detailed way, obviously. But there are very few people that saw Robson and Keane that will tell you that Keane was a better player. So maybe Keane's passing was better, but as an all-round footballer, I would say like Rob, I would say that Robson was better. And then you kind of had late-era Robson in the sort of where he was slowing down, where he would just absolutely plough through people and get a benevolent pat on the head from the referee because he was Brian Robson and everyone knew that Brian Robson could do what he wanted because he was Brian Robson. So had a, had a hamster called Robbo, actually, <laughs> after Brian Robson. And in true Brian Robson style, he did not last that long. Oh, before um, It wasn't a dislocated shoulder that got him, ultimately, it was death. But uh, it came very quickly, and I replaced him with a hamster called Sparky, who was quite a lot more robust. <laughs> the irony there. So, when, yeah. when you go into your first games, is anything you like, you, like touching back on it now you can remember? The stands out from you know the yeah I mean it was funny because my parents or even now regret they went I remember they went to the the in the 1983 Cup final went to a replay and um my, I'm Jewish so my parents are quite into keeping the laws of Judaism so we didn't go to football on Saturdays and then the Cup 83 Cup final goes to a replay and my parents went and um they opted not to take me I got a rosette still got it somewhere fuckers and um, United won four nil my parents they sort of regretted not taking me um, and then. A couple of years later, you know, I got to the cup final and in those days, like the team that was in the cup final would rest loads of players, obviously, in, 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 before, in the final league game. Nowadays, kind of, often the teams that are competing in the cup final are also still competing for the league because, I mean, I guess the power and the money have become centralised more so. Uh, but United played Watford away in um, the last league game before the cup final and then my dad sneaked off, went without telling me and United got whacked 5-1 and um, when you came back, I was still pissed off they hadn't taken me to the game. So quite soon at the beginning of the next season, we went to we went we went to United play West Ham on um, Bank Holiday Monday. And West Ham were really good that year. They came fourth and they came they came fourth third. Not the United came fourth. West Ham came third, and on the on the final day of the season, Liverpool, Everton, and West Ham were still in with a chance of winning the league, which I don't think is something that has happened since, yeah. uh, where three teams can still do it on the final day, and. Um, they just signed Frank McAvenny and have McAvenny and Cotty up front and they still had, and they had Adam Devonshire. They're a good team and um, United beat them 2-0 quite easily. And I guess the thing I remember more mainly is um, my dad used to like singing old Frankie Frankie, Frankie Stapleton. And I remember when the crowd start, started up that one, my dad was like elbowing me and saying, I have, have a listen to this. But otherwise, I think the noticing the stuff that's going on in the game beyond the football escaped me completely. Yeah. I was just totally obsessed by enthralled to the football. Um, obviously, the I mean, everyone remembers the site, the first site of the green. Doesn't need, no, no one who's been to a football match needs me to tell them about the green. And I mean, I still love it now. Um, I'm 41. Um, but yeah, the green. Um, and I, yeah, I remember, I, I remember the football. I remember, I remember Jesper Olsen running around uh, most of the West Ham team and missing a sitter, which is sort of Jesper Olsen's United career <laughs> in, uh, in portrait. Um, and I think it was nil-nil at half-time and then Strachan and Hughes scored for United and United won 2-0. And United were top of the league where they stayed, more or less until Robson got injured and um, the board sold Hughes to uh, Barcelona um, midway through the season. And he didn't really want to go. And he wasn't really the same after that. And Atkinson, basically, Ron Atkinson was manager of United at the time, spent, I think he'd already bought Alan Brazil 
who was rubbish. And then he spent a lot, the, the rest of the Hughes money he got went on uh, Peter Davenport, who, a winner at Anfield aside, and I think that was the season, was it Anfield? He scored the winner, maybe, maybe he scored the winner at Old Trafford, but definitely a winner against Liverpool. Um, and uh, Terry Gibson, who played centre forward for United, yet managed to score more goals against United than he did for. Um, which is, yeah, which is an incredible piece of information, really. <laughs> but he, he wasted that money and Atkinson was gone uh, not much more than a year later. So, if you go into the matches now, obviously we're working on The Guardian. I've had uh, James Pearce, works for The Athletic, on to, to Liverpool a couple of, couple of episodes ago. When you're going now as, as a fan, do you find it quite hard or quite difficult to kind of have you like take your professional hat off sort of thing and just focus on the match as a fan? Mm, I mean, so, sort of. Like I'd say the actual routine or process of going to the game with my mates, my dad, whoever I'm going with, is obviously just a treat, a pleasure. Yeah. And one we all appreciate so much more now that we're not able to do it. Um, at the game, I mean, you try and absorb yourself in the game as a supporter as much as you can. I mean... I'm as much of a balloon, dickhead, whatever word you want to use, as, as everyone else is there. Yeah. I'm as ill, poorly, as all the other people that are obsessed with this shit. But I'm not going to lie, like, I do make notes. <laughs> because I'm not sure when I'm... I mean, I'm not a reporter, so I don't, I don't go to games and write reports, and I definitely would not like to do that. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, this is a pleasure, a passion, a lifestyle, all of those things, and... Yeah, like the idea of, first of all, the idea of going to watch a team that isn't United on a reg or going to watch a team that isn't United when United are playing makes me like, inspires a physical reaction in me. Like, I don't, I won't do that. I don't want to do it. Yeah. But um, I do, I do write about United and I do think about United and a lot. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is not going to be news to anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure. So, yeah, when things happen in the game, yeah, I mean, I make notes and, that is ultimately the price that you pay, that not me, just that anyone pays for having a job that is also a pleasure, something that you love. So even if, even if I never wrote about football, even if I didn't like football, but I was a writer, yeah. I would always be at work in one way or another. Like I'm always making notes about something because you have a thought and you kind of at some point rely on yourself to remember it until you can be fucked to write it down. But it doesn't take very many lost thoughts for you to never, ever rely on your memory in that way. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, to, that, to that extent, um, I'm always at work. I'm always tapping at my phone to the extent where I've got RSI in my hand at the moment <laughs> from constant that. So, yeah. So I try, I try my best to experience the game in the way that I would always experience it, as in I'm not going to be making that. Like, there's not United aren't going to score and my mates or the randoms are going to be hugging over there, falling over the rows. And I'm going to be like, well, actually, yeah, um, but yeah, I do, I do, I do record shit. It's true. Yeah. So you wrote two books on United. So on the road, a journey through the season, which was published in 2010, uh, and the Promised Land, published in 2013. What did the uh, what was the drive for writing those books? Is that something you'd always knew you were going to do? Uh, I always wanted to write, to write, to write, to write books. I don't think anyone that went to school with me would be particularly surprised. By, by what I do because I was kind of always I mean I was mainly at school I was mainly into being a knobhead but I was also into football and words and stuff like that yeah um so um 
the first book came about because I was kind of really just um, starting out as a football writer at that point, and I was writing for Eurosport. And I'd done a few pieces, not Eurosport, um, ESPN. Um, I'd done a few pieces for them, and they asked me to write a weekly column, and we decided that the weekly column was going to be about following United about. So I was doing them, and then in the course of doing them, I thought be good to put these into a book. Um, unfortunately, they completely bollocked me by managing to not win the league that season. <laughs> they were going four in a row. And um, truth is, is actually, it was Fergie who made a bollocks of it that season. And, and they also got completely screwed by the refs, which is, inst- which is not an excuse at all. You have to be, you have to be good enough to, do, to, to, to win whatever the refs do. But also, one of the reasons I'm, I'm absolutely certain, I'm not accusing the refs of anything here, but early in the season... Fergie laid into Alan Wiley for being unfit. And he was usually, he was obviously amazing at playing people, but that felt like an error when he did it. Because if you belong to this body who are getting it from all sides, and people, and this is why the responsibility for VAR is all the dickheads that don't understand that referees are capable of making mistakes, who are adults who can't get over the result of a football match for hours, days, weeks afterwards. Yeah. Um, that's why we have the current mess that we've got because people refuse to accept the fact that referees make mistakes and they should be adult enough and human enough to just get on with it. But anyway, um, so Fergie accused Alan Wiley of being fat and, out and unfit. If, you're, if you belong to this very small body in a huge industry of people who everyone's always slagging off and basically the biggest man in that industry this is one of your number in public, subconsciously, that is going to put you in a situation where if there's a marginal call, where are you going? And I don't say that at all as a, as a, as a criticism of the referees. Like, I don't think the referee is particularly good, but I know that refereeing is really difficult. Yeah. And if they get it wrong, they're not trying to get it wrong on purpose. But the idea that they watch all the football that we watch. They read the papers that we watch. They love the game. They think about the game. That, and they also have personal relationships with so many of the people involved in the game. If we're saying that no, no decision that they make is affected by their personal relationships, then we're idiots. Of course, that's the case. And the, the quantity of decisions that went against United in that season was exceptional. So, yeah, which is a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I decided to do the book. I guess I was hoping at the time it looked like United were going to win a fourth title in a row and were actually pretty well set to win the Champions League as well because um, Mourinho's in there had done, and the, uh, the Icelandic ash cloud had combined. I don't know how Mourinho arranged that ash cloud, but it was when he was still at his dastardly best and none of that shit was beyond him. But um, they arranged for Barcelona to lose. So, and United had found they'd not been able to beat Barcelona in 2009. But in 2010, there was no Barcelona. And, and, then it, and then Rooney got injured against Bayern Munich and they managed to not win the European Cup either. And that was actually like, kind of like when people evaluate the career of Wayne Rooney, I think sometimes people feel like Wayne Rooney disappointed them a little bit because when he broke through in 2004, he looked like he was going to be one of the greatest players we'd ever seen. And he settled for being one of the greatest players of his generation, ultimately. And so that was kind of a disappointment for some people. But I think it's important to note when we're looking at Wayne Rooney like that, that there were two occasions in his career when it looked like he was going to upend everything by himself and he got injured both times. In Euro 2004, when he was incredible and, it, and England looked like they were, had a really good chance of winning it. And I mean, they did get, they lost on penalties to Portugal. He then lost to Greece. England with Wayne Rooney 
probably beat Portugal and probably beat Greece. Um, but he got injured then. And in 2010, when he was in probably the greatest form in his career, um, he, um, he, he got injured and United managed to not win the league and not win the Champions League in his absence. So, yeah, that was how I did the first book. And the, the treble book was just, it's just, I guess, an idea for a book. Um, and the book got sold and was lucky enough to do the book. Um, although I guess the problem, the difficulty with that book was that because I pitched it the time when I pitched it and it had, it had to be out for Christmas. So I ended up having to write that book in about six weeks, which is uh, not a course of action I would recommend to anyone. I would say it's not a bad way of doing a first draft of a book because when you're forced to work on something for that number of hours, you see connections that you wouldn't otherwise have seen because there's nothing else going on in your head apart from writing that book because you're doing like 10 till 4 in the morning, 10 till 4 in the morning every night. But it would have been nice to have had some time subsequently to refine it. Like you would then have, to be nice to have a month or two after that. But yeah, that was, that was how I did those books. But ultimately, you can't, I can't, couldn't bitch about getting to write a book about United winning the treble season. That was... I mean, it's an honour and a privilege and something that you need to... Is if, you, if you're someone who gets to do this stuff that you like, something that you should never forget. Yeah. So, kind of coming away from the match day now, I wanted to ask a few specific questions on the football club. So, I know United brought in a, a singing section, or I'm not too sure if I'm allowed to call it a singing section as such. I've been told off by a few United fans in the past about that, but uh, they brought that in at Old Trafford. Do you think that helps the atmosphere um so my first season ticket at old trafford was in the original singing section it was um was it in 2000 i think i got it um and it was it was it wasn't bad up there but the prop the error that they made was they stuck it in the top tier of the stratford end and you, that that's not you need to be lower tier like for where your noise comes from you need to be next to the pitch yeah so it wasn't bad it wasn't bad up there i would say I mean, it, ultimately, I mean, everyone wants there to be one seeing section and it to be the whole ground, but that, that's never going to happen. And the, they, the board, when, when reconfiguring the ground at various points in the, in the 90s, they put the family stand in the Stretford End, they put executive boxes in the Stretford End, and that definitely had a, a negative act, uh, impact on the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I think that... There is now, I would say that what they've got now in, uh, they've got um, a, singing, a singing section or in, um, in uh, J-Stand, which is in the corner there. I, I stopped going to Old Trafford after the Glazers took it over in, in 2005, but it's very obvious. And I think particularly in the smaller games where there are more tickets available in that for kids and people can go and stand with their mates, um, as they would in an away game where just people go where they want more or less. And that's one of the reasons you get such a good atmosphere. And one of the reasons United fans give such a good atmosphere because uh, apparently it's not like that for everyone where people just go and stand where they want and people actually go to their seats. Yeah. But what you want is as many like-minded people standing together as you can. And I would say what they've done now in J-Stand, you can really, you can notice the difference. And I think what's also good at Old Trafford is, I mean, people, obviously everyone bitches about the atmosphere at Old Trafford, but is that the away fans are also close to the, close to the pitch. And, because, I mean, that is, I'm really glad that they changed the rules about that now. Because it used to be the case that um, you're usually, as an away fan, you'd go and you'd go behind the goal. And then sometimes you get moved to the side. I remember when Martin O'Neill was manager at Villa. Um, he moved, he arranged for the away fans to move down the side because he thought that usually be in the second half when the away side were attacking their own fans, that would be a disadvantage 
to his team. Not really sure what that said about the mentality of his players, but um, they've since, and then, then you go to some other places, like Sunderland moved you to the upper tier, Newcastle, I mean, you're basically watching that game from, from Durham. Um, and they've now changed the rules so that there has to be away fans at pitch level, but somehow Newcastle have still got away with it at this point. Um, yeah. and, but, but um, I mean, yeah, you don't you don't want there to be a singing section. Calling a singing section sounds twee, but the atmosphere needs to come from somewhere. And if you've got two thousand people who are going to sing for ninety minutes, then if you can put them all together, Makes there's sense. not a doubt that that is going to make it better. Yeah, definitely. And it's contagious that kind of thing. And it's also, I mean, it was interesting is that now United have been just shit again. The atmosphere has in some ways got better. Because I think when the football's good, you're in a position to sit there and wait for it to happen. And you know that it's going to happen. And the players don't need you as much. But I would say that they've been, since, since United turned shit, and it's been quite a long time now, the atmosphere at Old Trafford and the atmosphere away is also, I, I don't think they've got worse. And, and they might be, it might have even got better. Yeah, no, I'd agree. So you touched on the Glazers there. So I know... You know, the majority, if not, not all, United fans want the Glazers out. Do you see a world where the Glazers walk away from the club? And if so, what do you think it'll be that eventually makes them part ways? Well, I think the stories were are that when they first took over, they were thinking about actually not completing the takeover because they were made to fear for their personal safety. Okay. That is one way. Um, that's not going to happen. But if that was going to happen, it would have happened then. Didn't happen then. It's not going to happen now. Um, and I'm not saying this. Is not, I'm not making any value judgments here about that is a bad thing. That is a good thing. But I'm just talking like facts. Yeah. Like if you fear for your personal safety, that will affect how you behave. Uh, that's not going to happen now. And now the only the only other way is unless there's a crazy recession that means that they can't afford to pay some of the uh, some of the loan repayments, or that they get an offer of such incredible magnitude that they can't that they, can't, they can't reject it. But ultimately, as a United supporter, as a football fan, as a fucking human being, I hope that doesn't happen because the only people who are likely to be able to buy the Glazers out are people that shouldn't be allowed anywhere near football or anything, anything else for that matter. And the Glazers have taken over a billion pounds out of United. And it's worked out for us also worse than we would have thought because the two best teams now are our two main rivals. So when United are winning everything in sight in the 90s, you will know as a Liverpool fan that you could hope that Chelsea won the league or you could hope that Arsenal won the league. Yeah. Um, and, but as a United fan, like, we don't have that. Every, yeah. every season begins with damage limitations. So I would say that when Liverpool got good, I initially wanted City to win the league because Liverpool hadn't won the league since 1990. I was happy for that to continue. But then once City had two in a row, like last summer, I actually changed my opinion. I was like, well, actually, if City wins three in a row, then that conversation about who the greatest... English team of all time is is City can be part of that conversation whereas with only two in a row and no Champions Leagues I would say I understand I mean I know people would argue it but United have got two teams that won three leagues in a row the only teams that have done that are those United teams and they also won the Champions League in that run I don't really see that any sensible argument about who the, the greatest English club at least in the Premier League era can be is anyone other than one of those two teams and everyone else fighting for third place. 
So when it was City and Liverpool last season, I was thinking, well, actually, I changed my mind. I feel like I prefer to be Liverpool this time because I, I dislike them both equally. So it, it becomes about context and circumstance. Um, but yeah, so now, you, so you know, City have owners who've put over a billion pounds in and United have owners who've taken over a billion pounds out. But if you offered me United's owners or City owners, I'm still going United's owners because ultimately football isn't that, football is extremely important, but it's not that important. And I don't change my morals. And I don't change the things about life and humanity in the world that I think are important based on what stuff I want my football team to win. And ultimately, yeah, and I would much prefer some horrible bastard owners who've, who've taken all this money out of the club and who have given money to Donald Trump's campaign versus city's owners who preside over human rights abuses and are terrible plutocrats. So, yeah, I mean, it's not great, is it? No. But here we are. And ultimately, yeah, it's the, it's the government and, and it shouldn't even be, like, we blame the, the we blame the, um, the PLC for selling to the Glazers and Fergie has a part in that for pissing off Cornwall over the Rock of Gibraltar so that, um, so the Rock of Gibraltar sold to the Glazers. Like, those guys are responsible for this. And we blame the Premier League and the FA, who should never have allowed these people into our game. But also, the government have a massive responsibility because, and it's the same in, we're seeing it in different area now when we're seeing clubs going bust. Football clubs and all the football clubs, from the biggest to the smallest, are community assets that belong to the people. And they need to have special status in law that means that not any old person can come and buy them. And... Um, United supporters have been let down in the same way that Newcastle supporters were let down and Mike Ashley, in the same way that Leighton Orient supporters were let down, in the same way that Leeds supporters were let down. And there's an extensive list yeah. of, of scumbags that have been allowed to buy our football clubs and have left them in various states of ruin and disrepair. And yeah, and that extends also to people like Roman Abramovich, another extremely unpleasant individual who has put money into a football club, but he's not done it because he loved the romance of Chelsea FC and he grew up watching Peter Osgood and, and Hutchinson and, and, yeah, and David Webb and all these guys. It's, yeah, it, I mean, football ultimately, it changes society, but it mainly reflects society. And what we see in football is what we see everywhere if we open our eyes and look around. So, so coming, coming away from the Glazers now, what are you most excited about as a United fan going forward now? Um, I mean, there's a saying, there's, Matt Busby said, there's nothing on earth like being a Red. And that is something I will always feel, however good or bad United are. Yeah. Um, because, and going to the game, is it still represents like my family heritage, my relationship with my dad, um, mates that I have who... I would never have met if it wasn't going to the game, even if we'd have known each other as kids, we may or may not have been mates, but with whom I've shared some of the greatest times and the greatest nights of my life. And it's the anticipation of all those things and the representation of all those things. And the things in my mind, like everyone has an image in their mind of what they think their football club represents. And it might represent that to just them, or it might represent that to everyone. And I think about the things that I've learned watching United, whether it's being a 15-year-old at Selhurst Park in 1995 watching Eric Cantona jump in and boot Matthew Simmons and thinking of, as someone who's trying to understand themselves and the world thinking yeah 
like always be true to yourself, whatever the consequences. Or um, Matt Busby talked about the rebelliousness of youth and how you know he wanted United to encapsulate that. And all those things, those values of flair, of not giving a shit, of taking the piss, of being brave, like taking taking brave options, of the things that I learned from United, things that I love about United, and things that I want to see from United in the future. And looking at where United are going now, um, I would say I feel more positively about United than I have since 2013 because I yeah. feel like we don't know what what players are going to what players manager is going to be allowed to buy, but they look much closer to a team than they have at any time since Fergie left. So finally, the podcast is centered around going the match. So with every podcast we're doing, I want to uh, end by asking what your top three favorite matches you've been to. So it doesn't have to be based on the 90 minutes itself. It can be something happened during the day or whatever it may be. Okay, uh, this is difficult. Um, I mean, I've seen United win two, two Champions Leagues. So, and the first of those was to complete the treble. So, I mean, I mean, it's very hard to ignore... May 1999. So I guess, I guess I've got, a, I mean, this is not a one, two, three. Um, but it's interesting. My, my dad, my dad, I mean, he's retired now, but he was a school teacher. And so the first two, first three, I mean, the first three Champions League finals I went to, my dad couldn't come because he was teaching. Um, but the fourth one where we got absolutely walloped by Barcelona, my dad was there. And the moment when Wayne Rooney equalised, getting to celebrate that goal with my dad in the Champions League final is up there with John Terry falling on his ass and Ole Solskjaer's winner. Um, but I am going to go, I'm going to pick one Champions League final, I'm going to pick the first one. Um, I'm going to pick 1999. The reason I'm going to pick that is partly because it completed the treble, which is the greatest achievement by any English club. I've been equal, I mean, it's up there with, with Celtic doing it, uh, doing it in 1967, but... Arguably, you could say that Celtics is a better achievement because they did it with players entirely from Glasgow and its environs and that will never happen again and but um, the United team that did it it wasn't just that they won the treble it was the manner in which they did it with loads and loads of goals loads of amazing goals loads of young players from Manchester um, superstars who came to represent more than football like David Beckham um, it was just it was everything that so all the great United teams have more or less comprised some incredible cheap purchases and that team had Peter Schmeichel bought, Dennis Irwin uh, bought for Ole Solskjaer bought for, all, bought for bugger all, really. Um, some expensive signings, Dwight York, Yapstam, Roy Keane, and some homegrown talent. And that team encapsulated all those things. And the way that they played, they scored six goals against Barcelona. They scored in, in that season. They scored a one from 2-0 down away to Juventus in the, in the European Cup semi-final, which I think is the greatest performance ever by a British club. To, to, to do that to be 2-1 two, 2-0 two, two and an away goal down and to come back and win and to do it in the way that they did it is like nothing I've ever seen before and then to I mean it's ridiculous yeah, you don't no one needs me to tell them what happened at the end of the Bayern Munich game but what also people I think don't realise about that team is that team lost the last but the last time that team got beat that season was just before Christmas at home to Borough and then they went the remainder of the season without losing a game in any competition which incidentally is a longer run than um, than Arsenal managed at any time in their invincible season, um, and they actually the, the unbeaten run that went from that Borough game until they lost in about October of the following season is the longest unbeaten run 
in all competitions of any team in any of the major European leagues. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it's just, I mean, I'm talking all this bullshit about football, but the reality is also that I was 20. That was my first year at university. It was my first year of being in charge of my own football going to the extent that I could afford to pay for it. And because I didn't grow up in Manchester, my mates growing up weren't Reds. So I went to that game on my own. I went to Barcelona, went to Barcelona on my own. I went to the game on my own. And I guess it's some kind of, or been elevated by my mind, by nostalgia, into some kind of rite of passage of going of that. So that's, my, that's, that's in my top three. I'm also going to go with... I'm going to go with the last game of the 92-93 season when United were away to Wimbledon, um, where um, they um, um, basically United won the league and they celebrated the league. They won the league for 26 years, which was all my childhood. I grew up with my dad bitching about the teams that I grew up loving yeah. because he'd seen United win everything. And, and then we were there together. The last game was at Selhurst Park and um, United took over Selhurst Park. I mean, it was almost all United. And it was just amazing to be there, like the joy on people's faces, like people that were a lot longer in the tooth than me. I mean, I was, I was 14, that, that, had, that had been all over, that had seen the disappointment. The season before, United had lost the league to Leeds at Anfield. And I wasn't there, but people that were there talk about seeing like grown fucking hard men crying. Uh, men who did not do a lot of crying as a matter of course and I mean I didn't yeah I wasn't there but I and I didn't I couldn't feel what it meant in the same way that those people not just people who were there but people that had lived through the last 25 years of watching United felt that day but still now I have watched United lose the league to City on the last day of the season with City not having won the league in, since 1968 and I know what that felt like but that was 13 league titles and two European Cups later. That was nowhere near as bad as what happened on in that day in May 1992. So to then come back and win it the next year and with Eric Cantona as well was just amazing just to be there. But there was a moment with probably about an hour gone and Brian Robson had been, um, he hadn't been a regular that season, and but he was playing that day and Everyone made a big performance. In the previous game, United played Blackburn. They got free. They went two one. They got a free kick in the last minute. And then Gary Pallister was the only player of the, the, the first team that hadn't scored that season. So he goes up to take the free kick, and what the fuck he scores? But amazing. But Brian Robson also he wasn't in the first team. He was a he used to sort of he'd come on and help them close out games basically by keeping the ball and kicking people. And um, he he hadn't scored that season. And then after about an hour, probably it was. Like, just an aimless punt goes downfield. And what the fuck? Robson's through. And I remember my dad and I clutching each other. And Brian Robson's life, life's work had been trying to make United win the league. Like, he could have gone to any team in the world because he was that good. But he stayed. I mean, probably partly because it wasn't really done at that point so much. Like, I mean, occasionally English players did go to Italy. But that was, that was mainly it. And none of them really, not, most of them anyway, not none of them. Like, like Mark Haley did well in Italy, Ray, Ray Wilkins did okay in Italy, but mainly it didn't work. And um, so Brian Robson's going through, and me and my dad clutched each other because it's like he's, he's drawn goal, like, there's nothing that can stop this happening. And he scores. And watching someone like for me, like Brian Robson, encapsulated everything about United until that point 
was encapsulated to something extent by Brian Robson. And watching him complete his life's work and have that moment was, and to celebrate that moment with my dad. So I think in my mind, I've sort of set that as like some kind of passage from my childhood to my yeah. teenage years, from United never winning the league to United almost always winning the league yeah. to thinking about football in a different way. I remember on the platform at South Park after that game, found Red Issue on the floor and uh, the fanzine. And that was the first fanzine ever paid me to write as well. The first, the first people ever. And I'm now a writer. And um, just everything about that day will always be extremely special. I shall see it. And um, I think the other, and the one more, I've got to pick my nipper up from school in a second. So um, I'm going to waffle less with this one. <laughs> but I guess... I was kind of thinking about going for a Euro away to Leon, where you know where you just have those Euro ways where everything just fits. Like all your mates are there. Um, you work, you do the, the perfect amount of pre-match eating and then boozing to make sure that you're belted for the game, but not so belted you don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, I scored in the last minute. Um, we celebrated with Lewis Sahar's mum and sister because they were there. Yeah. And then... We had a great night out afterwards. Just everything worked. But I then remembered that, I, yeah, I had I was going to go for that one. And in the, in the course of talking, I remembered that I've got to go there at Canton Hotels, um, where you, where the, the relationship the United supporter had supporters had with Eric Cantona was something unusual. I would say, where you get these footballers occasionally who represent something more than themselves. They represent something more than the team. They represent some ideas about being and all of that was encapsulated in Eric Cantona he was everything I love about United everything I wanted United to be he was he was big he was strong he had a flair imagination bravery daring and he was cool as fuck yeah. and I mean and I mean every he's someone of certain people that no one would argue like Liverpool fans might hate Cantona but no one is telling you that Cantona is not cool and it's the same, I mean, a different way now, Marcus Rashford. Whatever you think about him as a player, Marcus Rashford's a hero. And no one's going to argue with that. Ooh, and, um, and it was like that with Cantona. And, I mean, I used to, we used to, I went to Jewish school. We used to have to wear kippah on our heads, like a Jewish thing. And I had Tipex seven Cantona on mine. And, um, <laughs> and, yeah, I used to walk around school with, like, the lapels of my blazer turned up. Like, seven Cantona chalked on the back, all that bullshit. And the summer after he booted Matthew Simmons, I did probably my st most stupid Eric-related piece of activity, where I was um, I was on holiday after my GCSEs, and um, I was in Israel, and I decided on the last day of my holiday, I had this brainwave. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put plasters on my chest on a, in the shape for number seven, and then I'm going to go on the beach in the middle of the summer in Israel without sun cream. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to burn myself to absolute fuck and I'm going to have a number seven basically tattooed on me without actually getting a tattoo. So I did. <laughs> and it hurt a lot. But at no point did I think I shouldn't have done that. Um, because Eric Cantona was, as I said, like all those things I thought were important, not just about United, about, but about existing. Um, and it was encapsulated by that night with Matthew Simmons where... He was walking off the pitch after he'd been sent off. Someone shouted shit at him that he didn't like. He was like, okay, let's have it. And I say that like, I mean, I felt like I said, let's have it. Like I'm someone that's ever fucking said, let's have it to anyone. I have not. I'm not I've never been in a fight. 
where he just embodied, uh, uh, embodied everything you wanted about yeah, you. I, yeah, and I appreciate that if, so, if I say certain shit to someone, I might get a tickle. And I don't particularly see why being on the other side of a fence at a football match should, should mean that that doesn't happen. If, if there's a footballer walking past me and I start talking smack about his mum and he gives me a right hand, what am I going to say? Nothing. But I think the thing about what Eric did was that it was, as I mentioned earlier, it's that lesson of be true to yourself, whatever the circumstances, and you won't go too far wrong in your life. And that was what I ultimately thought about from that and what I still think about from that. And that season, um, you know, I lost the league by goal and I lost the cup final by goal as well. Um, if Cantona doesn't do that, doesn't jump into the crowd, then United probably win the league, you would think. Um, and in theory, that, they won it again the next season and again the season after that. That would be five in a row. No one's ever done that. And they would have also won, let's say they won the double, and they won the double the season before and the season after, three doubles in a row. But I would not exchange what Eric did that night for any of those trophies because football is about stuff that's more than football. And... Mm-hmm. That moment is one of my favourite moments in all the years I've been watching United, and I'm absolutely certain that it always will be. That's a fantastic way to finish the podcast, mate. So before you go, just a massive thank you for giving up your time and coming on. Really appreciate it, mate. Oh, not at all. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please subscribe, follow, and share, and of course, leave a five-star rating.